You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. What are you drinking there, Johnny? Uh, it's my post-run shake. It's frozen banana, some peanut butter, some ascent protein, and maple syrup. Sounds pretty good. Did you just get done with a workout? Uh, just a run. Uh, I just ran 10 miles. It was a combination of some dirt, and then road, and then some more dirt, and then back. Yeah, it was rolly. So you're not you're not in Colorado right now. You're in California. Yeah, I'm in Northern California. Like San Jose area. Um, sort of. So I'm in the East Bay of San Francisco, about 50 minutes east of the city, at the base of Mount Diablo. Oh yeah. Um, for people that know the area, and yeah, my parents live out here. I'm out here visiting for Christmas and New Year's, and there's some really good trails. So the real the real question is how how many goats are within a hundred yards of you right now? Like six. <laughs> <laughs> That's at least five more than I can claim. <laughs> yeah, there's like six goats, three peacocks, uh, two dogs, whole bunch of chickens, and then there's cows all over the place. Is this like a hobby farm, or what's the what? What do you have going on over at the abode, the parents' homestead? I'm always curious about uh, this. Yeah, no, my dad, um, he has a cattle ranch right now, and then I guess all the other an- oh, and there's two horses. All the other animals are kind of hobby animals. Um, they're just fun to have around, and they make for I guess interesting days every now and then. Because every now and then, like a chicken swallows a nail, and then you don't know what's wrong with it, and then you take it to the vet, and you get an X-ray, and then there's a giant nail in the chicken. <laughs> it's like what the heck (laughs) you take a chicken to a vet this one we did because it was acting really weird my dad just wanted to get to the bottom of it like what is wrong with this thing huh yeah i assume a chicken's an animal you just write off and add to a meal (laughs) i I don't want to anger any chicken lovers because it was acting so weird like we didn't want it to have some disease and then like kill off all the other chickens okay that makes sense yeah are nails contagious nail swallowing i don't know I don't know even how I got it down because this nail is like this big. It was huge. <laughs> Did you have access to all these animals growing up? Like as a kid, that would be a dream. Yeah. Yeah. I had basically starting in middle school, I've always had access to a whole bunch of farm animals. Like at first, it was kind of terrifying. Uh, I don't know because cows are pretty freaking big. And then, <laughs> and then some like chickens can be intimidating at first too because they're just like, I don't know, can't trust them all the time. But like now, you're just used to them. Um, you learn your way around them. Well, now I'm intrigued. <laughs> Starting in middle school, you suddenly had access to farm animals. That that's a that's a transition there. <laughs> well, what happened? Uh, yeah, my parents just moved on to a ranch, um, and then slowly we like accumulated all these animals. Like uh, slowly, cows came into the picture, chickens, peacocks, and more dogs, and then goats were more of like a high school late high school thing like started with one goat the goat turned out to be pregnant but we had no idea and the next thing we had four goats and then it got to the point that we almost had 10 and then we had to like sell them off and then now we're at six (laughs) so you went from in a city to a a farm overnight it was suburban suburban Suburban. yeah what prompted that change it was my dad's dream to just always have his own farm because growing up 
um, in Brazil, he just worked a lot of farmland and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I don't know, herding cows, goats, and all that stuff. And then, yeah, the opportunity presented itself, and he took it. That's that's impressive. I like when people go after their dreams. So that's that's pretty cool. What he what did he do prior to being a freelance farmer? <laughs> freelance farmer. <laughs> um, he had a computer hardware company um, that he expanded, and then it got to the point that yeah, he was able to find his own ranch, just like a place that really resonated with him. And then now we're here. Natural career tra- transition there. <laughs> from yeah, no. computers a hobby farmer. Do you know that I um I grew up around a lot more animals than you? They just all happened to be dead and on the wall because my oh. father is a, a taxidermist. So <laughs> my so, guess is a petting zoo, but <laughs> <laughs> no, none of these animals were alive, brother. They were all just glossed over on the wall. So very different animal exposure growing up, yeah. I would say. That would be the safest from an insurance purpose style of petting zoo though. You could pet anything you wanted down there, to be honest. Yeah. And none of them like bit you or you know fought back. It was nice. Um, so are you are you in shape right now, Johnny? Are you fit right now? What do you what do you do with your fitness? I'm kind of curious. Seeing you just got done with the run. Yeah, I'd say I'm I'm in pretty solid shape. Like I'm not in like dynamite shape. I'd say, uh, but I'd be able to hold my own. Um, so right now I'm really just focusing on the running. Just getting those. Just getting that time running in um, before. I don't know. We don't, I don't even know when I'm going to race again. So yeah. <laughs> and then like before that racing comes around, I'll probably sub in more cross training too. But right now the main focus is just really layering in that running. Cause like I'm at a interesting spot, like with my body, it just took so long to be able to handle like quality mileage that like now I'm actually at a point that I could follow more, more of a traditional running setup rather than like more of like, a ton of cross training and some running because I was always getting injured. So now I'm just like enjoying that mileage and like getting out on trails and um, sharpening things slowly. I do want to get to your cross training and your working through injuries because I feel like that's important. But what does layering running looking, what does that look like for you right now? When you say I'm focusing on running, what, what type of volume are you now able to do? What kind of weekly setup, what kind of polarization do you use as an athlete in this weird not transitional, but transitional time of the non-race season. Yeah. Um, so I guess right now I'm running about nine hours per week, which equates to about 70 miles. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a mix of like like half roads, half or like roads, like flat dirt roads, um, and then half trail. Well, right, at least that's a setup since I'm in California right now. In Colorado, you kind of take what you can get. It's like a lot of dirt roads and then like some like big roller dirt roads where it's not really trail but um you still get plenty of elevation change um and then running one work like like one true workout a week like on wednesdays like intervals or threshold work and then a long run with purpose um which is around two hours so anywhere from like 14 16 miles and then Real, real quick, when you say with purpose do you mean with like cut downs or pickups in there or just intended yeah. distance yeah uh, no, there's some sort of workout I'd say in it, like, um, either some threshold work, like lately it's been more just like easy, moderate. So just like get finding that groove that like feels good, but it's like still relatively easy. Um, so I, I guess if you're looking at more technical terms, like closer to your aerobic threshold, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and then, or sometimes it'd have like a couple of like 
intervals at like hour effort um, type thing. Yeah. <clears throat> Sounds familiar, doesn't it, Bracken? The whole yeah, I like that. one quality workout and a quality long run. We uh we subscribe to that school of thought, Johnny. Oh, nice. So you're gonna try to sustain that, or are you trying to build that up before you get race specific? Um. I know this is that. newish territory for you. I know in the past you were logging big bike volume and yeah. run as you can. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sort of. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'd say, yeah, the moment just, yeah, sustain it. Um, just become really efficient. And then slowly, like once things melt in Colorado, you translate that to more mountain specific stuff, which is more specific to me. Right. Um, so when you get specific, mountain wise race wise whatever do you maintain this schedule and add in a second true quality or do you start replacing things out um i guess i get more specific with terrain so like depending on the on the race you're trying to target like so say for example i'm running six days a week right now i'll have like if i'm getting specific i'll have like three or four like trail mountain days um Mm -hmm. and then two flatter days and then one of those flat days is like a little quicker and like one of them's obviously easy um just it's like important to keep that smooth turnover going because that mm-hmm. just helps a lot with uphill running and then you obviously need the strength so then that's why you layer in the more specific mountain trail work and it's just way fun to be out there yeah. <laughs> do you keep your intensity to two big days a week or do you spread it out a little more um yeah generally two big days a week um so right now i'm working with megan roche um, so then I'm really curious to see, because I started working with her this summer where we basically spent like all summer, like laying this foundation for me to be able to handle more mileage, um, coming into the winter and coming into next year. Um, so then I'm curious to see how that transforms itself, um, coming into more, I guess, I guess, I don't know with the races on the horizon type thing. But right now the goal is just to like, um, really dial in that that running, um, get the strong, uh, run economy base in and stay injury free. There couldn't have been a better year for you to decide to start layering some things in because you didn't have to test any of it. You got to just go, 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 go. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And there's like, I don't know, all year, like I was always hoping I wanted to try something more like I struggle saying like very run specific because, <laughs> um, I guess it's not what people would imagine but i guess it's run specific for me (laughs) yeah um more just working in that like really true easy running rather than like it being governed by like external metrics um and like really getting to know yourself and so i figured like if i'm gonna make that change like this year was the time to do it Mm -hmm. you mentioned um and then we're gonna we're gonna go take a dive in your past. We like to do that here, but I want well, yeah. I have one more training question, and that is, um, you mentioned like when maybe racing season came closer, you'd layer in more cross training. I believe is what you'd said. What yeah. do you mean by that? Um, I feel like cross training is just like it's a so like all studies show that any cross training is basically good cross training as long as it's like not through the walls, like of like mm-hmm. high intensity and whatnot. Like it will make you fitter. Um, but there's only, at least for me in particular, I noticed that like, I can only sustain like a super high block of volume for a certain amount of time. So then like, you got to time that well, like when you sub in like a little more cross training, um, to really reap the benefits of it. Would that mean like, for example, let's say you're running nine hours right now 
and racing season approaches and they're important races. And so you layer in another four hours of cross training on top of that to hit 13 total hours a week. Would that be like kind of a vague way to put it or am I misunderstanding? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's a good way to put it. And it's like, don't get me wrong. It's not like a, it's like, Oh, race season's like two months away. Let's just like jam an extra four hours in. You're mm-hmm. always like trickling that in like over the months. Like, I don't know. So you progressively overload your volume with adding in non-impact work in order to kind of spike your fitness up and then you remove out as you, as you race. Yeah, I guess, um, like once the race is around the corner, you obviously like, I personally, I like tapering a lot. There's a lot of guys that, um, they don't like that. Um, so then when like 10 days out from the race, you just chop out, um, I guess all volume for me, but, um, it's tough. Cause like the Spartan season, it can be so long. Yeah. So you really mm-hmm. got to like pick your poison, like when you want to layer that in and get really aggressive with training. Um, but I guess to better answer your question, it's like, let's say, I don't know, the Spartan season like last year was literally February to like <laughs> <laughs> end of September or something like that. So yeah. then I got really aggressive with volume end of like around August, um, held that up until world champs and then tapered that out. But then up until August, I was trickling that volume in. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I asked those specific questions because I would say that of the athletes I know, you do the exact opposite in terms of when you prioritize your non-impact cross-training. Whereas a lot of people, they use it in their off-season and in their base build because they're not ready to handle pounding. And then as races get closer, they ramp up their run volume big and they replace cross training with running. You're getting your run volume up and then you're trickling in cross training as a more of a sports specific fitness as you get there. And that's just, I I like the idea of it, but it's exactly opposite of how a lot of people I know use biking in their training. Yeah, but you also got to look at like the people's backgrounds. So like a lot of those guys, like for example, um, I don't know many people like a, when you talk about that specifically, what comes to mind is like the European mountain runners, like Killian Jernay will literally stop running. I don't know, mm. for like four months in the winter, same with John Albin. Um, mm-hmm. and like, I don't know, um, there's a bunch of other really high level mountain runners that do that. But like those guys have also been running every summer since they're 12 to train for schema. Well, except for John Albin, mm-hmm. his story, he's. Uh, he's unique in his own way, I'd say. A freak. Um, yeah. <laughs> so like that works really well for them. But I believe like um, in order to get really good at, uh, in this case, it's running, like you got to take some time to really just put in those miles in a smart way, in a sustainable way. And like this just happens to be, um, that just happens to be where I'm at this year. Um, and I'm really mm-hmm. investing that time. Um, but in the future, like, I could see that being a thing, you know, like, like in the winter, getting on skis more, like biking more, running a little less. Um, but I think for the, like in every athlete's journey, like in this case, it's running, getting, trying to get better at Spartan races and mountain running. Like you got to take time and put in that trial of miles and just really clean up that running. I think that's like one of the things that like makes, made Atkins so great. Well, it makes Atkins so great because he's had like all those miles, like in him same with Hobie call it's like it's like Hobie isn't great because he trains four four hours a week he's great because mm-hmm. of his background he has like so much mm-hmm. so many so much run economy in the bank and like hunter for that matter too it's like 
he didn't become a good runner overnight. It's like when you talk to him specifically about his training, like he had, I don't know, like big, big blocks of running, you know, that really helped him clean up his game. It's one of the reasons, Johnny, that I've liked watching what you do. And I'm a fan of, of you as a, like, I don't like competing against you, but I'm a fan of you as a fan of the sport because your progression has been really intelligent and purposeful. You named a couple people who've all been sharing that characteristic where they're very purposeful about what they do and why. And you, like those guys, understand that this is a continuum through a career. It's yeah. not a, I set my seven day a week schedule and I'm going to repeat that for 15 years and yeah. go. You understand that I'm working on this facet in order to work on this next facet. And then when I get done with that, now I've achieved this new level that I can go off of. And now I can work on different things and maintain what I used to do. You have a very pointed and specific mind for how you train. And I've I've liked watching that from from afar throughout what you're doing. But it's it's just cool that some people we talk to, Johnny, are like, yeah, I, I run a bunch and I'll hit some workouts from time to time. And I know there's just a few things, few key workouts I got to hit here and there and I feel comfortable racing. And yeah. you get the sense that they're not entirely sure why they're good. They just have found a sport they're really good at and they don't, they kind of stay out of their own way in training. And then you find some people that have methodically attacked their weaknesses and improved their strengths. And that's why they're good. I mean, they're both fun to talk to, but I really, yeah. really enjoy talking with people that you get to see a real clear picture of how they've thought their way through their process. Yeah, definitely. Huh. I've never, yeah, I, I'd like to, I don't know, just like hit some key workouts and be really comfortable <laughs> with my fitness, but <laughs> I guess that's not the way to go for me. It reminds me of a question we got in one of our recent Q&As, Bracken, where somebody had asked, like, hey, I see these pros who take these big off seasons and they only ski or they only cross train and then they come back and, you know, a few weeks back to running and they have great fitness already and they're racing well. And they said, should I do this as well? Because all these great people do it. And the answer was absolutely not. Like you started running in 2017, you know, person asking this question, like you can't model yourself after the pros in this facet because they've put money in the bank for decades and you're yeah. just starting. So no, you actually need to run your ass off in the mm -hmm. off season because you're behind the eight ball there. And so it is actually really enlightening to say like, to recognize where you're at in your progression of sport and say, Hey, no, like I actually need to put more money in the bank right now to keep getting better. It's just like so individualized. And how often do we use those guys like Albin or Killian Journey saying like, look at their off seasons, they get non-impact volume in and they're doing it right and smart and periodizing and peaking at the right time. Yeah. But they've earned that right. And we all have, we all haven't earned that right. You know, it's really interesting looking at um, like guys literally at the tippy top, like Killian Journey, he spent his whole life, like literally winters only skis. And then he'd like run to his mailbox to get his mail because it was super cold. And that's like all the running he would do in a week. And then summers he would run because there's no snow. And then, so like he did that, I don't know, probably from the time he was like eight to like he was 31 or something like that. And then this past year, or the year before, he decided to run through the winter and then came summertime, he broke a whole bunch of records that he hadn't been able to touch before. And that didn't necessarily happen because he was running more. It, I feel like that happened because of it, it was a diver diversification of stress. Um, and that just happened to make him way fitter. Um, so it could work both ways. I said it a few episodes back, but it's interesting that you bring up Hunter and Hobie. And I said that I don't think anyone's done more to hurt 
people's training in this sport than Hobie calling Hunter McIntyre because they're such (laughs) far end of the spectrum freaks of nature who their training snapshot that people see does not show what they did prior. And Hobie and so many times in interviews or in person said, yeah, I only run 18 to 20 miles a week, three times a week, sometimes four. That's all I do. And people are like, see, that proves we can do it. Like, well, maybe, but go back to high school and run 60 a week and then go to college and run 80 a week and then run yeah. four years of marathon training at 90 a week after that. And then, sure, sharpen up and run four times a week. <laughs> but yeah. it's that. And those are great guys. And they're so phenomenal for the sport. But so many people see what we want to see or we see that snapshot rather than the entire life of the athlete. And your life as the athlete started running-wise I think relatively late for what most people at the top of this sport started. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I was like 19 or so. Um, damn, 25 now. <laughs> but, oh, man. Uh, but like, I'd say from 19 to like 23, um, it was very broken training. Like I was always injured. Um, like I had probably a year and a half, almost two years in that from when I started running at 19 that I wasn't able to run a step like consecutively. Mm -hmm. It was like a year and a half of not being able to run because I had a broken shin. Um, Mm -hmm. So then, and then there's like all sorts of soft tissue injuries that would like take me out for like two weeks to six weeks at a time. And I was like, what the heck? Like, I don't get it. I'm like, I'm young. (laughs) I eat normally. um, And I'm getting all these random injuries, you know? And yeah. I'd say, yeah, I started later than people, but I was also pretty broken up, unfortunately. Um, but that's like, I guess like an athlete, like in your progression as an athlete, like you need that time. That's like, that's where you really get to know who you are. And it's just, it's not even like a trial of miles. It's just like a trial of time to see what you really want and like how you can get to where you want to be, you know? When you say you need that time, like you just mean like time in practice of running no because i wasn't running it was more like time and figuring out how to train because like i was training so stupidly that i kept getting injured you know Mm -hmm. and i feel like every high level athlete has had like a period of time like that where they're like trying to find that rhythm but they keep like hitting a roadblock does that make sense it makes perfect sense and you, you might hit another one and then grow even more as an athlete you never know it happened to me a few times now but oh yeah definitely there's two things that, that I know about you, like in your past. I want to dive into your injury and getting through all that and, and stuff. I believe you had a tibial situation, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Um, but but it, I know two things about you, really, as far as your background goes. Um, and that is you came through like a long period of injury before you like really got momentum and had breakouts in your racing. And then you have a high-level soccer background as far as sport. And I believe you were all in on that for quite a while. Yeah. Could we just talk about your your past like uh, athletic endeavors for a little bit? Like, yeah, of course. Uh, was it soccer, soccer, soccer? Was there anything else? Yeah, it was basically soccer, 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 and then I guess. But like, I would try to squeeze like every ounce of every part of my soccer training. So like the fitness side, I'd hit really hard. Like I would run tons of intervals, like with and without the ball, um, and then. That was basically from when I was like 12 to 19. I was training uh, quite a bit, um, like at least like hour and a half a day, I'd say. <laughs> um, and then 
my dad was a marathoner, so then every now and then I'd hop into like a 5K or half marathon. But really, it was like every now and then I'd say. It wasn't very often. But just to keep your fitness up for soccer, like it all came back to soccer, anything you had done. It- yeah. Yeah, like I thought, I thought running was stupid. I was like, "Nah, I'm never gonna be a runner. I'm gonna be a pro, pro soccer player. Like, this is the life. This is the way." Most all <laughs> soccer players do hate running. It's bizarre, but I remember showing up because I started playing soccer and I ultimately chose running in college versus soccer. But um, I remember thinking, like, beginning of practice, and they'd make us do our runs as conditioning early in the year. And I don't think there was a bigger bunch of babies than all the soccer guys bitching about going for a three mile run as conditioning. And it's bizarre because so many people, I mean, soccer is running, especially outdoor soccer. So it's always fun, yeah. I found that surprising that a lot of my soccer teammates hated running. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know. It's like, especially when you get to the higher levels of soccer, like there's some players that are just, they like think, they like absorb information so much faster than everyone. Say so they literally, like if you stuck a tracker on them, like they'll run maybe three miles in 90 minutes because they're like so far ahead of the game. So, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of those guys can get away with less fitness. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Like, soccer players, like, are a bunch of weenies when it comes to fitness and, like, pumping out some push-ups and stuff like that. Like, they freaking hate it. <laughs> so, you were doing 10-plus hours of training for soccer already at a young age. Yeah, yeah. So, while you missed out on maybe your running years there, you were not having an idle engine. Yeah, no, I was definitely, like, I was definitely training i'd say like i was definitely working fitness and whatever facet that was you know like it obviously wasn't structured or anything you know but like i had coaches that would like help me with like the whole stability and strength side of things like i'd go to once or twice a week and then i'd work like running intervals with and without the ball on my own so like that was anywhere from like 10 seconds really hard to like a minute and a half really hard or like i remember like when i lived in brazil like there is like I'd hop on the track every now and then and like do track workouts or like there's like this little lake that was um it was like a a loop was a k so then i'd like do intervals there um hill sprints i was kind of all over the place but i was always putting work in i'd say no we talk about with like younger kids because you i assume you started playing soccer like real young like how old were you when you started playing i was like i was in kindergarten Okay. Young, real young. Yeah. Like we talk about like, how do you train like a young kid to be an endurance athlete? And the answer is you don't, what you do is you, is you let them work on mechanics and sprints and shorter stuff, but you don't take a a nine-year-old kid and say, all right, mile repeats today, son. And like, that's just not quite where they're at in their development. And so like as a soccer player, like one could argue with that sport and knowing what it takes like developing the skill and the mechanics and the power and the drive and the starting and stopping and lateral movements and all that stuff. Like you couldn't have really trained any better for an endurance sport at a young age than doing something like soccer. Cause you're not going to be really training volume. So like, I just think, I don't know. I think that's like one of the, one of the sports that really translates well for like later in life is just skill yeah. development as like a young person. No, definitely like that. And it looks like, like a lot of those Europeans, like they do a ton of schema and I don't know, that tends to like keep, young kids really engage just because like kids love sliding downhill on skis um so then that seems like another sport that's really translated well and like doesn't necessarily lead to burnout in endurance sports later in life um and like other ball sports too like kempson played basketball um and yeah he's dynamite so (laughs) Mm -hmm. playing endurance when you're young is the key yeah, I think just moving, moving is key, really. 
Yeah. So you were born in Brazil, correct? Yeah, I was born in Brazil. Uh, I lived there for like for like two years, and then came to the U.S. Lived here until I was four. Moved to Germany. Lived in Germany from when I was four years old till ten years old. So that's six years. Moved back to the U.S. I did fourth and fifth grade in middle school, or maybe it was fifth grade in middle school. And then after middle school, moved back to Brazil for like three years, and then moved back to the U.S. Finished high school, and then I went to college here, and I'm still here. Why? Uh, my dad's work. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. People have one of two experiences with that. They are aimless, they're lost, and they hate it, or it makes them who they are, and they kind of love it. Which one yeah. are you? I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like the one thing, I don't know, it, it made me really adaptable, I'd say. You know, like I really, I don't know, I really like looking back at just all the experiences I had growing up. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. and like I, I learned to speak a bunch of languages, so that was really cool. And um, what do you all speak? Uh, English, German, Portuguese, and Spanish. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but like I can definitely see how people with similar upbringings could really not like the moving um, and constantly having to find new friends and stuff like that. But I feel like I was in the I was in places just long enough to make friends and make good connections. If that makes sense. What sport you're you're in? Yeah, like soccer was definitely my anchor. It's yeah. what connected me to people everywhere I went. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why it was why I was so hooked on it. Like at the time, I didn't know it was that big of an anchor for me, but it was almost like it helped connect me to people, um, and it just kept me like focused, you know. Mm-hmm. So when you were rolling around playing soccer and doing all this stuff, like just to bring this a little bit back to center, do you um, remember a time like did you know that you were a fast runner? through your soccer training and compared to the other athletes you were playing with, or were you just one amongst the many at that point, um, as far as runability goes? Whenever we did anything longer than like 100 yard dash. So if it was like multiple or if it was like shuttle runs or like, yeah, basically anything over a hundred, I was generally like the fastest guy on the field and like anything like over a mile, like I was just, I was just way quicker. Um, every now and then, like, there were kids that were able to hang, but I feel like part of it was just like, I was just so hungry to like win at everything. Um, so part of it was that. Um, but there was a couple times that like I hopped into some, some like road races and stuff like that. And um, I ran, I guess pretty well at the time. Like when I was in high school, um, I ran a half marathon. I think it was my junior year and I ran it in like an hour 20 or something like that, only off soccer fitness. And then my dad was like, what are you doing, man? Like, if you, like, start training now and, like, you could be really good at this one one day. Um, And then I basically told him to shut up (laughs) and kept playing soccer. (laughs) Um, So there is, like, moments that, like, like, I always had it in the back of my head, like, oh, running could be really cool and whatnot. But, like, I just had this dream, like, of becoming a professional soccer player. And, like, that just, like, got me so stoked, you know? and so I never like actually pursued running, but there are like snippets that I'd like, I'd look for trail races to hop into or like road races and stuff like that. But it was never like, it never had a strong enough pull on me, I'd say. Did you reach your ceiling in soccer or did you reach your physical limits of injury in soccer? Uh, I just got burnt out. It, like I took it so serious that like I just started hating it, you know? It was like this thing, like I cared for it so much that like 
came game time, I was like so busy thinking that I couldn't keep up with like the speed of play anymore, you know, like because I took it so serious. And like that was probably that was like literally the most heartbreaking thing ever. Yeah. Mm. When did you come to that realization? Like, shoot, like maybe this this has a shelf life. Um, like I started getting snippets of it my senior year of high school and then my first semester in college, like that's when I broke my shin the first time. And then like, I just like hated my coaches. Um, and then I decided I was like, no, nah, like, this is starting to take away from who I am. Yeah. Mm. What level did you reach? Were you, were you close to your dream of playing pro? I could taste it. <laughs> um, like in high school, I played at the San Jose Earthquakes Academy, um, which was the local MLS team here. So I played for their U18, um, yeah, U18, U20 squad. And then like, um, and then I played in college uh, at San Bernardino. Um, but yeah, I'd say like, like a couple of the guys that I played with on Earthquakes, they're playing pro right now. Um, uh, yeah, and a couple of the guys I played with in college too, they're playing pro in the MLS. It's interesting what the mind game does. Dude, it's insane. Yeah. We, we've talked about a lot in my family because we're a family of thinker overthinkers. Mm-hmm. And, and we all kind of notice the same thing, that when someone is confident and relaxed, they're capable of doing things they're not capable of. Yeah. And when someone is tight and overthinking, they're not capable of doing the things that they're capable of. Yeah. And that at that highest level, it, there's no guarantee in team sports anymore that being the best means that you make it. You have to be able to access all your tools at all times. And that's heartbreaking when you realize I'm better in practice than what I can do in a game because yeah. my mind won't shut off. Yeah. That's a skill you can't fake. And it's tough because I guess my generation in sport was like, the first one that you really had like a lot of access to YouTube, you're able to see like interviews of like, for me, it was like Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, and like Danny Alves and like Marcelo, like, and then like you see like how disciplined these guys are, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, I gotta be that. Like if I'm like that, like day in, day out, like it's game over. I'm gonna be like better than these guys, you know? But that's not how it works. <laughs> it's like, I guess that like that creates more when you're a kid and you like force yourself to adhere to that lifestyle, it creates more rigidity. It creates more thought. It creates more seriousness in your life, which in the end of the day takes away from your, your potential to play, you know? And mm-hmm. I think it's true. Yeah, that's what happened to me. It's ironic to me because you have one of the most fluid, flowy, strides especially downhill that i've witnessed in person the least amount of rigidity that i've i've really ever seen someone running downhill with and yet it seems like you left soccer because of too much stiffness either physical or mental in your game yeah definitely and like i gotta be careful because like in at times like in this sport like that creeps back in you know and like things get very serious and um like downhill is a different animal to me. I don't know why, but like um, there it's everything just go like is off. Like I don't think about a thing and it's just like just move down the hill. But like in the like actual training process of things, like if I don't like consciously like try to inject fun or like diversity in it, like I get very I get very focused and like almost it's like a very 
turns it turns very dry you know and it's like i don't know why um it's partly because i'm partly like a, a perfectionist um when it comes that to that side of my life it's funny because like people are like johnny you're not a perfectionist like if you like look at like um i don't know like for example the way like i organize like certain things it's like yeah it's like it just goes all over the place but like when it comes to training like it's like pretty dang organized um so i don't know why i think it comes from like just caring deeply and like just wanting to be the absolute best I can be and like to really hit that, that potential, you know? Um, and so like now, like a big thing for me is just like managing that drive, like being able to balance that, like that just like pure like commitment and like drive to like improve with just like also like having the most fun possible and keeping it as fun as possible. So that like that, I guess, so I guess like that, um, that those like thought patterns that I was having and having in soccer just don't repeat themselves here. Do you work with someone on that? Yeah, I just started to. Um, and I think the big, a big thing is just like really just being super honest with myself always. Um, and yeah, just talking to the people that are close to you and just being really open about it, you know, and really like putting yourself out there like consistently like whether it's in workouts and just like challenging yourself like that's that's really big because I feel like what's next for me is just like really breaking down that like inner perfectionist so like just shooting my shot you know like going to races that are like a really long shot and like either like doing well or getting my butt kicked and being like yeah I sent it and that's and that's it you know (laughs) kind of like um kind of like Kempson did for I don't know. I think it was like two years back. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Like he'd just go out and like run like an East African and then blow up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. So I, I think like stuff like that is really good for people like me that like the idea of executing something as perfectly as possible. Um. So I think in order to break that down, you just got to like fail a bunch and like <laughs> shoot your shot as many times as you can type thing. And that's how that's how Kempson got to the top. He he shot he shot a shot for years and failed, and then finally caught his stride. But I think this sport is a sport of head cases and head games. Like endurance athletics, for sure is. So there's like a lot of relatability to like falling into that trap of perfectionism and getting caught in your own head. Because getting caught in your own head can be paralyzing, actually, at yeah. times, and then yeah. it renders you useless to actually achieve what you want. So because you've been like cognizant of that, like that's like a super valuable tool in your belt, just awareness, like knowing your tendency, right. As an athlete is to get too cerebral or caught up. Like, what do you do? I'm actually very curious to answer to this. Like, what do you do when you notice yourself falling into like old traps of like those soccer traps um, with, I don't know, just like the headspace. Like, how do you navigate yeah. that? Um, it's tough because like, um, I guess your athletic career is always changing, especially like after you get a couple of wins on your belt and like, you know what you're capable of. So then like mm. those traps, like with time, they look differently, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. like when you're kind of like hovering at like at a kind of at like a plateau in like your performances and stuff, you're able to identify those traps. Um, but until then, like, I think you really just got to take those chances and then like identify do your best to like identify those traps, you know, cause they're really, um, uh, they're unpredictable. Like you don't know where they're going to, 
happen or where they're going to come from. So like, I think a good way around that is just like really taking chances and learning how those traps present themselves and then going back, you know, reflecting about them, talking about them to other people. Um, and just like always kind of like kind of me on the lookout to them, but like not so much on the lookout that it makes like you super, I don't know, scared of them in a way, you know, it's like, you kind of like almost like want to want them to happen so you can punch that demon in the face. It's interesting. You mentioned Kempson because I think you two kind of personify one of the tougher mental, um, obstacles that are out there is that when someone doesn't come into a sport successful from the start, they're able to race differently. You know, you talk about Atkins or Hunter or Hobie, they were the man from day one. And so they had the target and they just embraced that from day one. But yeah. you, yourself and Kempson had the ability to come in and say, no one expects me to do anything other than blow up or not even recognize who I am. And yeah. I get to go out there free and just try to mess up someone's day. I just want to yeah. shake things up a little bit. But then it's really, really difficult. Once you do that in accomplishment, the eyes shift to you and the target is there and you self-impose the target. And now you expect like, that's my new status quo. I must keep that where it used to be. If I could crack through to top 10 or top five or a win, that'd be a dream come true. And suddenly it becomes, if I miss the podium today, this is a failure. And that's not racing with joy at the start line. Then it's, it takes excitement away and replaces it with self-imposed stress. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do with that? Because I know you had that after Utah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess Utah was like the first time that like, I was like, crap, like, like I can win this thing and I know I can, you know, and like, like the warming up for that race and like the first, I want to say 20 minutes of that race were like, if there's like, I don't know, like if there's like such a thing as like crippling anxiety, like that was it. It's like, I was like warming up, like I wanted to puke. Um, Hmm. It was bad. It was like, it wasn't even, it wasn't very fun to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) And then like we started the race um, and then just from the get go, it's like, it's weird because like I've gotten to the, like in that race, like I was pretty good at shutting off my thoughts, but it was like this force, like it's the only way to describe it. That like, I just felt like it just wanted to like crush me, you know? And like, it was like, almost like, I don't know. It just, it just wanted to like silence, like who I really was, you know? And, um, that's why, like, I don't know if you guys noticed, but like, I felt like, really far behind in the sandbag carry, like right at the mm-hmm. gate. And then I, I know this because to interrupt, cause I took 11th in this race, you won, yeah. and I was still ahead of you, like almost a mile into that race. And then you crushed whatever demon that was. And you shot up that mountain, like, ah, yes, this is my race. So I witnessed that and I was wondering what was going on. Yeah. And that was going on. Like I, I was just having like probably one of the biggest mental battles I've ever had, you know? Cause like, that was like the first time that I was like, I know I can win. Like I know, like, it wasn't even, like, it wasn't even, like, I know I can win. I was, like, like, my goal that race was to be able to just be my best self, you know? And then, mm-hmm. but then I was, like, fighting, like, all that exterior um, chatter of, like, oh, I know I can win. Like, if you win, like, you're second in the series and you have two wins on your belt. Like, I was, like, trying to shut all that out and mm-hmm. let the, the only thing that matters is being your best self. But in that mm-hmm. day... um not running my hardest wasn't being my best self and um I guess like just whatever that was like that wall or whatever like that was like that was hard you know I like it didn't I really didn't crack that thing until there was like a final switch back 
before we hit like this single track to the top of the mountain, mm-hmm. like that's when I finally broke through that thing. And I was like, it's go time. Like I can catch these guys. Um, it was visibly noticeable. Johnny watching that race was visibly noticeable. You were trudging and suddenly you were attacking like your form was personifying your mood. Suddenly on that single track, I think Killian and Atkins were the two up there. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were looking better than everyone. And then on that single track, suddenly you looked faster than anyone up through that. It was like a light switch happened. And what I was wondering, you guys went over, you went through, what was it? That like weird Rubik's cube box we have to go through. I hate that thing. Yeah. (laughs) And then you went down the side and you went over a wall and you jumped off of it. And you just hit the ground, bounced, and ran. And it looked like suddenly, ah, like this, I'm back to playing and having fun. You you looked joyful for the first time that race. Was there an actual sense of, okay, I've hit this point, and now I realize I'm there? Or was it just a relief like, oh, I'm not going to screw up? I think um, I think that point for me of like relief kind of happened when we hit the downhill. Yeah. Um, just, I don't know, I just feel so at home. It's hard to describe, but like everything like i can literally like pin my heart rate to like just under 190 and everything's still slow motion (laughs) um and that's a talent so you're not recovering on the downhills you're not relaxing you're pinning it oh i'm pinning it yeah (laughs) i'm pinning it like like i'm pretty aggressive when it comes to certain parts of downhill like in big bear like i'd ran some of the downhills the day before and i was like I was like, this thing's a racetrack. Like you can set your pace on your watch and you can hold that. So then like they're like at the top of the first downhill, like I changed my watch the pace and then I just held myself to like every steep downhill. I'm going to go like sub five, sub 450 miles on these downhills. And yeah, you just pin it. And I don't know, that worked for me. <laughs> uh, uh, but like in Utah specifically, I think like once I crested that hill, it's like, um, that that race was uh that race could end there and i was happy because like i knew that i i beat those demons that day and that's why i guess that's why i was there you know um that's why i race now it's like fighting those demons is just it's just really hard sometimes i don't know why because it's like it can always it can be like such a game sometimes like racing is the most trivial thing ever like especially like a spartan race it's a bunch of shirtless dudes trying to see you cross the line first but like you take it so seriously um but like now i guess like knowing that like i have like this struggle with like taking i don't know putting that pressure on myself like once you're able to crack that like it's the most rewarding thing in the world for sure yeah do you think that gets worse the better you become like like you're kind of your own you know it's a self-created situation right like the better you get the more pressure you put on yourself the more expectations on your by you know put on by yourself and others it's like that's gonna be like a tough you're gonna have to keep battling that because i don't see you uh i don't see you getting worse johnny so (laughs) so i'm guessing this is gonna be a constant work in progress yeah it'll definitely be a project um but if you look at hobie call's career i think he wasn't the road runner he could have been because of these struggles and then like it got to the point where he just let go and he was like i know what i'm capable of and i'm gonna embrace that like it's almost like a for him it was like an act of self-love he was like i'm just gonna let me be me and i think with time um like you just get more more mature and you just like embrace your truest self and i like to think it'll get easier um but it's hard to say i think 
it'll always be a battle to an extent, but I think cracking that, just breaking through that wall, like you'll find, like your toolbox will get bigger. So then you'll just be able to crack through that wall more often. It's really nice that you go in expecting that battle. Yeah. Because it does get worse for some people. Cody Moat left the sport because of it. Cody yeah. Moat was still capable of winning more world titles. And he left yeah. the sport because he could no longer sleep. Yeah. He could no longer get to this, the start line and do what he could do in training. Yeah. Because it was crippling to him. He was at 170, 175 heart rate the entire night before a race. It was, And that came on throughout his career. So yeah. going in knowing you have the attitude of, I am building tools to add to my toolbox so that when these come up, I'm prepared rather than getting blindsided by it at each new level of success. I think that that guarantees that these things keep getting broken through rather than crumbling you. Yeah. I mean, you also need to have like plenty of grace with yourself. You know, it's like not every race is going to be the absolutely perfect day. Um, you almost got to like, you got to be brutally honest with yourself, but patient at the same time, you know, um, or else you end up sucking the fun out of it. And like, it's really sad what happened to to Cody. Um, big fan. <laughs> yeah, I love him. You know, that's why Hobie stopped road running. Um, and he was able to break through it. And like, I'm sure Atkins deals with stuff like this. Killian had about a whole season he was open about as far as anxiety goes. And he's some, I mean, yeah. did he beat it or is he on some new tools? Maybe, I don't know, but him as well. Seems like everybody at the top ends up dealing with it. Yeah. And I definitely think like, it's not always going to be easy. It's never going to be a walk in the park, you know? Um, but if you're patient and like you give yourself enough grace to like develop these tools, um, like you can get through it. Like you can keep developing, you know, you got to look at it as like, as like a journey essentially, you know, um, because like, this isn't only racing, you know, like these tools are useful, like in different areas of life too. Um, Mm -hmm. that concept of grace and not every day is your best and that's okay. is something that has been a huge personal struggle of mine. Yeah. I, and I was fortunate to come into the sport when I did because it was in development. But one of the negative behaviors it taught me was that no matter what happens, I'll be on the podium because there just weren't enough people in the sport where if I had an off day, I was still successful. And so when it finally got to the point where the sport filled up, I became unable to embrace a good race that didn't result in first, second, or third. Yeah. Where prize money wasn't associated with it, it was a failure. And there, there's, there've been races where I thought, I am running so well, I'm just getting dropped. Yeah. And it was so depressing. Rather than leaving thinking, wow, that block of training worked. I felt really fit. It didn't work out for me today, but I ran really well. And and it's been super difficult to deal with. And I hadn't really put a word on it yet. But your idea of grace is interesting for an athlete because in normal life, like you screw up a project and you do it again. Yeah. Or, you know, you, you go into credit card debt and you work your way out of it and move on. Yeah. But in training and in racing far too often, we just throw out the baby with the wash. Like that race yeah. was a waste because I didn't do well. Or is that a baby with the bathwater? I screwed that one up. But, <laughs> but we get, we, we don't have that grace for ourselves that we, we don't give ourselves leeway for, not having perfection every time. Yeah, and I guess like something for me that I struggled not with so much last year, but more this year is like I know like last year like a lot of like things in training were so new, you know. So like you're like you like look at your phone after training, looking at your splits, blah blah blah, and all that stuff, and like you're kind of like judging yourself, you know. But like the more you do this, and like the 
bigger your goals become and stuff like that. Like, and if you're truly in this for the long run, you got to let go of that judgment in your everyday training and just like, you just got to knock it out. Like not every day is going to be perfect. Unfortunately, you're not going to like, it gets to the point that like, you're not going to PR every, I don't know, time trial or whatever it is. Or like, if it's Mm -hmm. like a tempo run, like, um, you're not gonna, I don't know, make forward progress. However you track your progress there. So like, it's really important to just like practice that non-judgment um, with purpose in training um, or else you're just literally going to drive yourself insane. It's like one yeah. stupid interval workouts and like, oh, it was trash because like I was two seconds per mile off. It's like, no, you idiot. It's like that's like your 80th interval workout this year. Like chill. <laughs> we, we preach that on this podcast all the time. Like yeah. progress is not linear. Right. I mean, yeah. you're going to have your peaks and valleys, but it's not like a direct linear relationship. One workout to the next to the next. Um, just saying on this topic of conversation, I have a curiosity now. We're talking about it. Um, I want to talk about Jacksonville this last year. When that race was over, there were three dis- three visibly disappointed people at the finish line. I was one of them. Yeah. Ian Hosick was the other one. And you were you were obviously the third. Yeah. So my my curiosity just on this topic of the mental fortitude was that a was that a fitness thing or was that a day where like the the demon didn't get fully shoved back um, in its hole? I think it was more of a demon thing ish. It's like I a lot like I didn't I don't I really didn't prepare for that race adequately. You know, like the running was there, but my obstacle transitions weren't, especially in the first half of the race. Um, like I got smushed on the Z wall. I lost so much ground there and on the monkey bars. Um, like I was kind of like went into it of like, Oh, I'm going to do the obstacles like I do in a beast or whatever, you know, where you kind of just swing through them and let your running do the talking. But like that 5k Spartan race, it's like a whole different animal, man. You got to be in there. You got to be ruthless in obstacles and everything, you know? Um, so like that was just plain, like, honestly, it was like a lack of preparation in a way. Like I just didn't practice like ripping through obstacles. Like a lot of these guys do partly it's because of my lack of racing sprints um and other stuff um but i think it was like a combination of both but like at the end of the day i think if i would have walked onto that course as confident as i could be out of one um because but like i just wasn't there um yeah i did it was just a different animal like just going really fast through those obstacles you know because like even like in a super like people are kind of more mellow uh but like, that's something I struggle with, like, in Seattle last year. Um, like, I wouldn't be surprised if my, like, if you look at the Strava segments, like, the running-specific ones, like, I'm probably top three in every single running segment. But then you look at my obstacle, like, into the obstacle and out of the obstacle, it's, like, way slow. And then when you, like, put that across, I don't know, what is it, 20 obstacles, you lose some serious time. So then I'd say Jacksonville was, like, a combination of, yeah, it was just that like your obstacle transitions, like you got to be fast at that. <laughs> There's no secret to that. So the national series will always include one sprint, not always, but it looks like it'll include a sprint to start the year and there'll be some supers. Are you accepting that or are you yeah. going to do something different to be ready for it? Um, I think, uh, well, I'm going to start practicing obstacles for one. <laughs> um, and then like going into like sprints and like, I think, depending on the super, it'll be very fast paced, like a Seattle in the next uh, national series um, will be extremely fast paced, um, where obstacle transitions will be key. So then like, 
I'll definitely do some specific work, uh, but not too much that it takes away from long-term development, you know, but just enough that I can let my running do the talking still, <clears throat> um, if that makes sense. Um, but like the way like this last national series was set up, you had two beasts, two supers and a sprint. So I think, and like one of the supers was a, was a pretty hilly course. So where you still need that really big engine rather than <clears throat> lots of obstacle proficiency. Um, but yeah, I guess like I'm definitely gonna make changes cause like, it's just stupid. You travel all the way to freaking Florida and you're not able to like push as hard as you want to because you like, you're not um, fluid enough on obstacles. Uh, not having the fitness is depressing. Yeah. Not having the skill to allow your fitness to come out is frustrating. Yeah, yeah. So it's more of like a frustration thing. Like after that race, like um, it was like COVID hit, but like I ended up signing up for two for like a super and I started going to obstacle gym every week, um, just practicing those transitions. Um, so like I was definitely sharpening my knife for the next race yeah uh, so but yeah like i wouldn't no i'm not going to be completely acceptant as it and like just like take the bullet you know like i'd like if i can put in some consistent work throughout the year and it's going to clean up my my ability to race sprints well like i'll definitely do that you know so what does that look like to you what does that look like to me yeah what, what how would you strike the balance between addressing it and not compromising your build yeah i think for a sprint specifically um, you definitely need like a compromised running workout, like you guys call it. Um, so like I would do that probably on my threshold day or like, not threshold day, like on like the day that I practice intervals and stuff like that. Uh, I'll do some sort of combination of pure running intervals and like obstacle going through obstacles fast, like back to back type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'd have to at all, I'd have to see where I'm at and like how much work I think I need, you know? But like, if you're looking at the series as a whole, you can't really dump everything you have into that sprint, you know? Um, so you kind of do it just enough. And then like come race day, like you got to be mentally strong enough to just like send it, you know, if that, if it means doing burpees because you sent it so hard, so be it like, at least you sent it, you know? Um, yeah. In that, in that super and beast distance, you can glide through obstacles and crank the runs. And at that sprint distance, it has to become like steeplechase where you accelerate your last three strides in and three strides out minimum in order to just maintain your pace. Yeah, definitely. And that's a tough adjustment if it's not practiced. It gets good really quickly. You can bone up on that quick, but there's so many spots to be lost in a 5K race with just 10 or 20 seconds worth of of leakage, you know? It's it's frustrating at times. Yeah, I mean, like, what I got pretty mad about in Jacksonville is, like, I I looked at some of the running segments specifically, and I was up there, you know? And it was just literally, like, this, this is, like, it's just, like, the simplest stuff in the sport, you know? It's, like, it's funny, because, like, you start, when you first come into the sport, all you practice is obstacles. You get really good at going from, like, one obstacle to the next, but you're just not fast enough to run with the top guys. And then, like, you work really mm-hmm. hard on your running so you can run with the top guys. And then you forget about the obstacles and then it's like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> it's like, yeah. now I got to play catch up. Um, so that was like, yeah, that's what happened at Jacksonville. And like, I was frustrated, kind of like lack of preparation and just like, kind of like not willing to completely send it because of that. Like, like burpees in that 5k is like the difference. Like I finished like seventh or eighth or something. Like if you do burpees in that, you're finishing like close to 20th. 
like because it was yeah. so fast. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you don't send it with the longest run in between being maybe 600 meters, I mean, think of you against a slow, a slower runner in just 600 meter intervals. You're going to beat them by three or four seconds, and that's yeah. significant. But if you lose two to three seconds on a wall transition or four seconds on monkey bars, you're suddenly the same pace as that guy. You know, it's a uh, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. And it wasn't like only the first two obstacles. It was like every obstacle. It was like, holy crap. And like in the race, it's so yeah. funny because like, it's like, I was like, I remember like I was cranking on the run. Like I was just like blowing by people and then like could come out of the obstacle and like that same dude was there again. I'm like, what is going on? Mm. Uh, but it is what it is. And that's like part of what makes it fun, you know, in the moment. It's like really frustrating because you have high expectations and all that jazz. But like looking back at it, it's like it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. You, you said you would have won it with with that. Yeah. Or you could have. Have you have you made that jump now from mountain specialist to I can win any race anytime? Yeah, I think my flat speed's definitely up to par with those guys yeah believe me if you want i don't really care like i know the work i put in i like hearing that <laughs> no i like hearing that no definitely um it's like i showed people in seattle that i can run flat it's like i didn't finish third because i got stuck at that stupid irish wall thing you know um yeah so and like i definitely i definitely will break into those like i definitely want that flat race win you know because like i also have like this huge passion for mountain running specifically in order to be like one of the best mountain runners, you got to be able to, you need to be like a really good flat runner, you know? Um, so that's what I'm working towards. So I think that'll naturally translate into getting good at the flatter Spartan races too. I mean, that's like, that's why John Alvin is so great at flat courses. It's because he can crank on these mountain courses, which require you to be like a really solid flat runner. That's not good news for the rest of the field. No, it's not. We didn't talk about like your transition from like soccer doom to like Spartan oh, yeah. success. Like, but <laughs> I don't even know. I don't we, like we missed that whole part of the conversation. Yeah. And I just want to like know how that transition happened. Like when you had that moment of ah, soccer might not be my end game anymore. Did you yeah. immediately transition into runner or like how did that look? Um. Yeah. It's funny. Like I was like, okay, I don't know what's happening with soccer, but I know that I hate it right now. So then I just stopped playing, and I was like, huh. I don't know what life is going to look at now. So then like I had like a weird like period of kind of just like, I don't know. I was like, oh, I got a dog. Uh, yeah. I was like soul searching basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then one day like on TV, like I saw Spartan race on TV. It was the Killington race. And I was like, this looks awesome. I could totally do this thing. And then like a couple months later, I registered for my first race. Uh, it was like Las Vegas Spartan race. It was a super. And I did that um, and it worked out well. And I, and that was the beginning of it, you know? Um, but yeah, there's like, I don't know. I just felt, it was really weird. Cause people would like ask me like, cause like I was Johnny, the soccer player. And then like, they'd ask me, so what are you going to do now? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just not going to play. I know that for sure. Um, I feel like in situations like that, like if your gut's telling you to not do something as strongly as my gut was telling me, you're better off listening to that than just waiting through a bunch of shit for days, you know? Um, because and then like things will just fix themselves. Uh, so I'd say like it was a good couple of months, but like I kind of just did like the first Spartan race for fun. And then after the first one, I was like, ah, oh, I think I'll do another one. And then I signed up for the Monterey Spartan race. 
And I did that one. That went well too. And then I went to the Hawaii Spartan. How did they go? I'm actually curious. How did Vegas and Monterey go? Um, yeah, Vegas. I finished like eighth, but I got a burpee penalty. Um, so then I finished twelfth, I think. Uh, mm. and then Monterey, I finished seventh. Hawaii, I finished fourth. And then I went to Spartan Race World Champs, where I finished nineteenth. Um, and then that was my season. I'm gonna jump in here, Kirk. When you took nineteenth at Tahoe at the World Champs, I didn't know who you were yet. I'd heard yeah. your name because some guys I knew knew you, but I didn't know you as a racer yet. But afterwards yeah. on Strava, you had the fastest downhill splits and definitely top two or top three of all of them. But I think one of them or two, you might have had the best downhill split. And I looked at it and I thought, I've seen that guy, I think, in results. That's not accurate. There is yeah. no way. And I had yeah. been injured that year and I wasn't fit enough for it, but I ran the course, the super course the day after just as a workout. And I did yeah. everything easy downhills hard. That was yeah. my workout that day. And you beat my downhill splits and I was running them as intervals. And I thought, see, that's the thing. This guy, I don't know if his GPS was off or he cut the course or what, but that's not accurate. And then we all found out painfully that that was accurate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that first year, for, I think that, that was my second time I did Spartan Race World Champs. Um, because I think I ran the very first year, I had a Fitbit that didn't connect to Strava. <laughs> <laughs> a real uh, serious athlete has a Fitbit. There too. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's, Fitbit. that's perspective right there for how far you've come. <laughs> yeah, um, and then like my second time at Spartan Race World Champs was 2017, I think. Yeah, maybe 2017. There, I finished 11th. Um, that was the that was the year that like. I got to the top. I don't know. I was like with Ian and like a couple other guys. And then I got to the bottom and I was like, whoa, I see all these guys on TV all the time. <laughs> and then that was like the first time that I kind of realized I was like, dang, I, I'm, I'm like good at running downhill. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't anything that you, um, like nothing you trained specifically initially. Would you say that it was, it is a gift that's been bestowed upon you initially that you have now honed your craft. Would you say like it came naturally to you to start or is it something that was super sticky to start with and you've had to really work hard to get to where you're at, which I know you've done, but yeah, I think you understand uh, what I'm asking. Yeah, no, I think it's always come more natural. I'd say, I don't know why. Um, but like, and now it's like at the point that like, if I'm not careful, I'll like, like if it's like a up down up down up down up down course like if i'm not careful i can like i'll i'll like completely blow myself up on on downhills harder than i can on uphills um which i've struggled with a couple times in races um but it's something i don't know it kind of just happened it's weird uh but now it's one of the things that i'm really learning to gauge cuz it's one of those things that like uh metrics aren't the most helpful and it's definitely something that you got to think about um, consciously in training, um, because if you don't train for it specifically, um, you'll definitely pay the price in a race that's like up, down, up, down, up, down, like a big up, down race. You can kind of sneak away without training downhills, like getting your muscles ready. Um, but it's like races like Big Bear or like Tahoe um, and I think Killington that like if you don't um, work on that specifically, it can really bite you in the butt we reference you a lot johnny in um 
in our podcast in regards to your downhills. And it's a skill we really encourage like our listeners to work on because there's so much time to be made up on the downhills that people are leaving on the course. Right. Yeah. Um, but we we're talking to the source of the, uh, the downhill guru here himself. And, and I think people would, I don't know, find really valuable just to understand, like if they want to work, if somebody wants to work on their downhill running, like where do you tell them to start? And I know you're going to say, go start running downhills, but yeah. is there any more specifics to it than that? Yeah. Um, I'd say, uh, just start in your long runs, you know, obviously, uh, if you're prepping for a race, like anywhere, like from a race, I feel like races like Monterey, um, are really the starting point of where downhill gets, can make a difference. Um, so that's like a race with like a super with anywhere from like 1500 to like just over 2000 feet of climbing. Cause I'm saying 1500 because if it's a 10 K it'll be less climbing, but anyways, um, so like set your long, uh, set your long run up kind of like a similar ev- elevation profile as the race would be. And then depending where you are in your running career, um, like if you're just getting started, you choose, like you set a timer on your watch, like three to five minutes where you just like, you're not going to sprint the downhill. Don't do that. It's stupid. Um, you want to like run at a speed, um, like an intensity that's like easy, moderate, you know, kind of like that aerobic threshold um, intensity. Um, And that's like a good spot to be because you can still be conscious of like what your body's doing, like making sure that your feet are landing under you and that you have a good like forward lean. Like a lot of people just like lean back on downhills and um, that'll just, uh, that's just, that'll just like, that slows you down. And I think it's a lot harder on the body too. Um, So like step one, I'd say is, like in a long run, like an easy, moderate intensity, hit some downhills with purpose and um, just be conscious of like get comfortable with what your how your body is moving. And and yeah, that's the first step, I'd say. And then you slowly grow that. And then if you really need to um, like if you really need a good stimulus for like a race like Big Bear, that's like really aggressive up downs or like Killington, uh, then you can work in some intervals on your interval day. Um, but you definitely want to be gentle with those and you want to time them appropriately, like two to three weeks out from the race, preferably. And then you start small. Obviously, if you've never done them before, 15 seconds is good and just like really slam that 15 seconds. But you want to make sure that you're that you're clean on it, you know, um, and you get clean by running it in the long run, which isn't which is that like not super hard intensity. It's like that comfortable, fast, fun, easy, you know. Um, I think that's a good starting point. And it's all about like getting really conscious of how you're moving on that downhill, being comfortable moving your body in that like downhill angle, you know, uh, and just like building trust with yourself. I want to know you, um, did you miss your spear in Tahoe this last year? Yeah. Yeah, you did. Okay. That would be why I was in front of you somehow. Um, <clears throat> cause I didn't believe I was before that, but you passed me on the downhill, that first big descent going into yeah. into the festival area. I would say, because I had a good eye on you for a little while there, and then you disappeared like you you should on a downhill. But I felt like you descended with no regard for what was actually on the trail. Like it didn't matter. It was like the it was like the most graceful pit bull. I would describe it as going down the hill with no fear. No yeah. accord for a rock or a rut or a turn is like you blew through it like it wasn't even there. Yeah. Would you say that's kind of accurate? Yeah, that's accurate for my downhill running style. You kept a large stride, 
kept it open, even on like tight turns and other nuances, which most people would break on. Like, how do you train that? You just got to do it in training. You know, that's like where that easy, easy, moderate effort comes in where you like, I kind of like to call it your technical threshold where like, as soon as like you have like that point in downhill running where you're running really fast, where you like lose control of anything. And then that easy moderate is like kind of it like, dips your toes into that feeling, oh, I'm losing control. And then like, as soon as you like, feel like you're losing control, you really want to like lean into that and make the most of it. Um, I, I guess that's the only way to train for it. Um, but Tahoe is weird. Like there's snow on the ground. So like whenever there's snow, you just assume there's no rocks under it and you just go. <laughs> um, that's what I witnessed. Yeah. Has that backfired on you? Have you sustained a downhill injury or are you, is your proprioception uh, and your skill work so good that you're off the ground before anything bad can happen? Yeah. I mean, my first, I think this last summer I was going for a FKT. It's the Pawnee Buchanan loop. Uh, it's, it was, it's a big marathon loop through the mountains. And then uh, I just scorpion so hard on the downhill. Um, that was the first time if I, I fell and it was like, on the switchback where there's like basically like a berm coming up. So then I'm like, I knew that I was going to eat it, but I was like scared that I was going to hit my face on the wall in front of me. <laughs> that was the first time that um, something real bad happened. Uh, it wasn't even bad. I didn't get injured. I still was able to finish the FKT effort. Um, but no, I haven't gotten any serious injuries other than like uh, bruising my heel on stuff. Um, I've hurt my shoulder a couple times, like swinging my arm, um, but I've never fallen really hard now. So then my biggest question about the downhill, I guess, stems from a statement first. First is that I think you're the most impressive downhill runner I've ever witnessed in person. In terms of your, I've seen fast and smooth downhill runners before, but your aggression and kind of utter disdain for the terrain is unique, where you bound and leap and spring and sprint the way... I feel like Kirk or I would race a downhill if we had a 400 meter downhill race to run is the way you run all downhills <laughs> where it just matters that I get down fast because I don't have to worry about it later, except that you can just keep doing that. So it's the most impressive I've watched, but this year you went over for the Salomon trail championships yeah. and you, you ran against the, some of the best mountain runners in the world. What did you find out about your downhills on the big stage? And did you find out that they're as good as you think? Or did you find out that the other fitness that they have over you didn't allow you to use your downhills the same way? Yeah, I mean, they're, um, they're significantly stronger climbers, but like they are tracking all downhill times. And at the end of the four days, I was second overall for downhill still. So um, it held up. Yeah, it held up. But uh, my uphill running and flat running didn't. Uh, <laughs> but that'll come. That'll come with time. Um, and you're twice the size. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of those guys. Um, you're, you'd be surprised. Like a lot of them aren't tiny, um, except for like Francesco Poopy and Jim Walmsley. The rest are like, they all have like a schemo background. And I think they do just fine in obstacle racing if they decide to come out. Um, mm. But yeah, uh, it held up. It held up. <laughs> but it, it wasn't as, um, it's not yet the, the tool that it will be. So you are, you are not at your downhill ceiling. No, not yet. Um, like a big thing about being able to get the most at your downhill. Um, like for example, last year I did bar trail race. Um, and, um, Joe Gray, he has the course record there. 
Um, and uh, uh, that day, I happened to get the downhill record um, on that course specifically. But like towards the end, it's like my mind had more to give, but I just didn't have the engine to sustain that downhill. You know, I've done that exact run. That was one of my my long tempo efforts I would do when I lived in Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. I had aerobic threshold up and then as hard as I could to the bottom. Yeah. And I know what you're talking about when you start to hit the switchbacks below the incline and you're, you you want to accelerate in and out of everything, but your engine's not letting you. No. Yeah. It was, it was actually where I had that realization. It was right before the incline where there's okay. like a, it gets a little flatter and then there's an uphill. Um, yeah. A little rolly. Yeah. There's, it's a little rolly. And then, that's when I was like, okay, like some more specific run fitness um, will like will improve my downhill. That's the scary thing about you is you're relatively young in your endurance career. Like you're yeah. 25 and you claim to be like, oh, I'm getting old. But like as far as your endurance legs go, man, like you are probably the scariest person in the field considering, I mean, guys like me and Bracken have, I got two decades of endurance training and in under my belt. And what are you at? Like four purposeful years and some of those were full of injury. Yeah. <laughs> and it's pretty, that's pretty scary. I have another curiosity. Um, when Bracken mentioned something about guys, half your size, you showed up and raced in San Jose like two or three years ago in the national series race. And we actually ran part of that race somewhat together. Yeah. Um, and your fitness wasn't near where it was now, but, um, you know what I remember about that? I remember like you must've lost like 20 pounds since or 15, because I remember running with you and thinking like, Ah, this guy, like, you know, you carried a little more body fat on you compared to now. You were bigger in size for sure. Yeah. And now, like, looking at you when you won in Big Bear last year and you're just cut to pieces and you're just 100 and whatever pounds of just, you know, strength and runner. Like, what was that just a byproduct of training or diet or both? Because you really transformed physically. And I don't know if everybody's noticed your physical transformation, but it's actually astounding. Yeah, it's uh, it was just a byproduct of training, I'd say. I didn't really, I'm really bad at tinkering with my diet. I kind of just eat um, when I'm hungry. And um, like I have a, like when, in, like when in doubt, I just eat more type thing. <laughs> Good philosophy. So it's a, it's always like a byproduct of um, training. So like, for example, this summer, um, I was putting less time on the bike just to lay that foundation for running. And I actually put on, um, a couple pounds <laughs> uh and like i didn't even notice well um until like i was met i was trying to weigh my dog <laughs> and then i stepped on the scale and i'm like huh right um but yeah i don't really tinker um stuff specifically like when you when i that race in san jose like i was still in college um i was drinking and all that stuff pretty consistently so i think that that's probably the biggest diet change um and like just general stress like you carry a lot more stress which but like i was also lifting like way more back then and like now like i i'm pretty minimal with my lifts um just in an effort to just really like develop that running you know and i stay strong enough to be able to get the hoist up fast um flip that tire and like just do that stuff you know It's funny, Kirk, that you mentioned his body transformation because Mm -hmm. I have a very personal attachment to Johnny's body transformation. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) As funny as that sounds. Uh, When when I I was out of the sport for about a year and I came back for Jacksonville, I believe, uh, two years ago, 
and I thought, I'm starting to run quicker in training again, and I'm feeling good about my fitness. And I showed up, we had a media day the day before. And it was the first time I'd seen Johnny in over a year. And Johnny, I don't know if you remember, you came up and said hi, and we talked a little bit, just a brief little amount. Yeah. And you were in a tank top. And I thought, oh, shoot, this guy looks night and day from the last time I saw him. And I know I do too, but I'm a little softer and a little less muscular and a little less fit than the last time that he saw me. And he <laughs> is put together now and he's lean. And it, it kind of signaled to me that the passing of an era that I you can't show up to these things anymore without having prepared for all of it. And yeah. then the next day, you know, you were out there pushing the whole way through the course. And then the race after that you were, and I was fading throughout the course. And it so your body transformation has stuck with me over the last two years since then that like you can't play around anymore. Like you took yeah. it seriously. You showed up with the body matched to the sport. And I showed up with this like hobby jogging body. And and it was so stark that day looking at it and realizing he's made a leap forward and I've taken a step back and I'm gonna pay for it tomorrow now. So it's it's you had no clue that I've thought about your body now for the last two years, Johnny. <laughs> <I'm flattered. laughs> but I have. No, but uh, one thing I want to say is just like uh, just looking at bodies and stuff. Like I think your your foundation should always be training. You know, let training take care of what happens in your body. You know, um, don't like go take drastic measures, cut calories and stuff like that. Um, like you got to fuel to fuel your training um, and your body will learn how to move as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Like, Can't argue with that. If, if you look at all the top guys, like even in road running sports, the guys that stick around longest and run PRs late into their life, uh, like athletic life, um, are the guys that fuel appropriately. I mean, if you look at Ryan Atkins, like the man hasn't been injured in forever and he does absurd things throughout the season. And I mean, he fuels for it. So that's just a good example. Johnny, um, I want to know, because we started this conversation a little bit talking about your training and diving into it, and I just kind of want to wrap that up. Um, do you have a, first of all, it sounds like you have a new coach. Is that correct? You're working with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I work with Megan Roche now. Okay. Um, and do you have like, have you always been coached? And yet, regardless of if it's yes or no, do you have a training philosophy of your own um, in general? Um, yeah, um, I've always been coached, but like, I've always had like a idea of how I wanted to train and like I knew kind of just through research like what worked and what didn't work and like what resonated with me. So then like that's how I choose my coach. Um, mm -hmm. So w what does resonate with you? Like what what are some of the things that are important to you as far as your training and you believe in? Yeah. So like there's no way around it. Like volume has to be a staple in training, especially if you're early in your endurance career. Volume has to be progressed um, smoothly like 10%, like between five and 10% increments, depending where you are in your athletic career. Um, rest is very important, you know? Uh, so like having down periods during the year, either taking like a week off at some point in the year, that's super important. Um, that's like a staple in all my training uh, these past couple of years. Uh, and yeah, I guess those are the main elements of it really. Uh, and then right now it's just really, work in that running side of things like really cleaning up that stride uh and and putting in that trial of miles as um some people call it i'd say um but i think the biggest staple is like there's no way around it it's you got to put in the right amount of volume for where you are in your athletic career like 
if you've been in this thing for a bit now and you want to reach the next level, but you're refusing to run more than, I don't know, three hours a week or whatever, that Hobie protocol, I'm sorry, it's not going to work for you because you're not Hobie call. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just always being brutally honest with yourself and giving yourself plenty of grace. Are you and Nicole Miracle are two of the only athletes in our sport that I know of that use a non-OCR specific coach as their coach. Yeah. Your current coach is a running coach, correct? Correct. Right. And that, that's always intrigued me uh, because some running coaches really struggle to A, embrace the idea that OCR exists and it's okay. And B, they struggle to integrate their protocol into the confines of OCR. But some yeah. do a really good job of it. So how has that worked with you? Um, using her running knowledge, do you pair it with your own and modify workouts or do you two work together? I mean, that's the thing. We started working together this summer. So like there haven't been any races, but um, I, we work together pretty closely. Um, the backbone of, of the training is always long-term development. And um, so it, it wouldn't be like some OCR coaches that have like a weekly compromised running workout, you know, um, like, I think that would be like either in my OCR specific workouts would be like I'd go to a race and race it as training or like I'll have like one or two specific sessions in a buildup and then let consistency and time and sport take care of the rest type thing. That makes sense. Yeah. Speaking um, again of another curiosity of mine is we didn't really dive too much into your injury back in the day. Like you're, you constantly struggle with your shin, right. And it being yeah. broken. And that was a huge setback for you. Uh, as a guy who's injured quite a bit, I'm just coming off of five months off of running. Um, it's been a little slow going, getting back into it, but nice. Um, we've had some conversations about coming back from injury a few times over like us knowing each other. And now uh, you've been injury free, knock on wood, like relatively injury free for a while. Yeah. And I want to know what, what is your secret there? Why, why have you been able to do it? What have you learned about your body in this process that's allowed you to be injury free? Yeah. One thing that's really helped me is just like, uh, consciously moving every single joint with purpose. So like just getting that good quality mobility in. Like I worked with Taylor Cruz for a while and he really helped me with that. Like I'd say he was the absolute game changer in my in helping my recovery game. Um, he literally taught me how to mobilize every joint in the body. Um, that was huge. Um, and then obviously you really got to nail your training volume progression and your training intensity. You got to be able to control that intensity. Um, so like those easy days, they got to be easy. Like you just got to let go of like the whole oh my God, I'm running less than a eight minute mile or like nine minute mile, 10 minute mile, whatever it is, like easy is easy. And then like, if you really feel like garbage, take that extra day off. And like, after like really big efforts, it's okay to take downtime, you know? And that's really made a big difference for me. So the sum of all parts. Yeah. I mean, there's no secret. Like it, it took time to nail it down. Like I've had a good year in regards to injury, injuries. Um, and this is last year, also a very good year in regards to injuries. Um, but I think, uh, it's like a sum of experience, you know, and just being brutally honest with yourself and like shutting things down when you need to shut them down. And, uh, it's really important to really just nail that e easy intensity, you know, regardless of what pace or whatever, what, what wattage that looks like, depending what you do. <laughs> that just keeps coming out. The more people that you talk to at a high level preach, slow is fine as long as you have fast in there 
And it's really yeah. difficult for people to embrace. And like yeah, you said, I mean, taking days off, people don't want to hear that. Yeah, they don't. Um, and obviously eating enough, like, holy shit. Like the amount of like really high level athletes that I've seen in the past that just underfuel themselves. Like, I don't know if it's consciously, unconsciously, or like, or not even fueling like during their long runs and stuff, like stuff like that, that all adds up. Like, especially like your long runs, like, you got to keep those glycogen stores like topped off because that's where the muscle damage and soft tissue damage comes. And then just fueling appropriately, even if it's only like hour 45, 90 minutes, like just pop a gel in and that'll help you bounce back quicker the next day. So you don't do any glycogen or do you do some glycogen depletion runs? No, I don't. Um, I believe that uh, the best way to for fat ad adaptation to happen is just through consistency, you know? And really mm -hmm. stacking high quality volume of weeks. Um, and yeah, I, I haven't practiced any uh, runs that are fasted or anything like that. I like my that. goal is to just be consistent and um, be happy doing it. And I feel like in order to achieve that, you got to fuel yourself like a champ. That should be a fridge magnet right there. Yeah, it should. Be consistent, be happy, feel like a champ. You want to answer one last question for me? Yeah, yeah. I just want to know what... Um... And I only had one left anyways. What what your plans are for this next racing season, if it happens? Um, I'm going to be doing more mountain running specifically. Um, I'll still be doing plenty of OCR. but uh, So like I'll do the spring races in OCR. But then come summer, I think I'm going to have to make a couple of harder decisions, uh, depending where when the series is and stuff like that. So I'll be doing a good mix of both, I'd say. And for, for mountain running... You'll most likely pursue the U.S. National Series in full if you can next year? Yeah, if I can. If I can. Uh, it's tough because they make you go to every single race. I wish like that you could cut one out. Um, but like I'm also going to be doing some of the Solomon Golden Trail Series races uh, to just, I don't know, you got to race the best to, <laughs> to grow, you know? Like even if there's some growing pains, um, I'm ready for them. And it's going to be awesome. Like I really want to just expose myself and like just learn to run hard and fast like in OCR and in mountain running. It's the only way you grow. You surround yourself with better, faster athletes and then you you, you work up to their level. I think that's yeah. a great development I mean, it's, plan. It's a different type of speed. Um, like even if those athletes came into OCR, they wouldn't be able to hang with the top guys in OCR, not an obstacle race, which is awesome. So it'd be cool to be able to run in both. <laughs> Well, Johnny, thank you for your time. It was great hearing some insight into the way you think, the way you work. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah, man, appreciate it, Johnny.